Let me pray, then I have a book giveaway. So make sure you got your thinking caps on this morning. Lord, it's your day. It's the day we come as a church to worship. But it's good to come here to this class before our corporate service. It's good to have these classes where we study your word. We become equipped as Christians. We grow in our knowledge and our application. Help us to do that with the doctrine of Christ, the virgin birth, the, the hypostatic union, and know all of these errors that are out there. They're attacking us in every way and help us to, whether it's at the front door or in our church or in some other manner through books or whatever, help us to be firm, to know the truth, and to be ready to turn away counterfeits at a quick notice. Pray that you would give us that wisdom. Amen. Okay, last week we covered, what did we cover? We covered the kenosis from Philippians 2. What does it mean that Jesus did not counted as equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on humanity. So there were three views, and what you're thinking of is the one that I argued for. I'm not asking you to necessarily agree with me, but that would be nice if you did, since that's in our doctrinal statement. Not, our, not the one we expect every believer to assign off on, but what we teach from the pulpit. I just broke my slideshow. I went too fast. There were three choices. I'm not going to allow you to do the first choice because that is heresy. So I'll leave that one marked out here. Who can remember the correct choice for Philippians 2.6? Is it two or three? Okay, who said three first? Somebody over here. I got like three people raising their hand. Surely. You get Counsel for Christian Workers by Charles Spurgeon. So we went through all that. I even showed you how we updated our doctrinal statement here in the church. Just to clear up some language we had before that wasn't helpful. This isn't necessarily some kind of heretical issue. It was just a clarity issue. And so we now arrive today at the virgin birth. We're also going to look quickly at the hypostatic union. And then contrast that with all the errors out there on the doctrine of Christ. Really the person of Christ is where most people go off the rails. So let's look at the virgin birth. There's two main passages and then one supporting passage. So if you have your Bibles with you, open to Matthew 1.18. And it's really a virgin conception. I mean, the birth is really quick. I know we celebrate that, but the virgin birth also confuses some people who aren't familiar with Christian terminology. You know, of course, all babies are virgins when they're born. So what is a virgin birth? Well, it's Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. But the scriptures focus more on this coming conception, which is brought about by the Holy Spirit. So Matthew 1.18, after the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So they're not officially married. They're betrothed. They're engaged, we might say. Promised to be married. Before they came together, before they had physical intimacy in the marriage, they're not married, so obviously That's the case in that day especially, but he's bringing that out, showing that this is not a physical child of Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has done this. The Holy Spirit has taken Mary's DNA and, and made a human out of it. And that's Christ. That's Jesus. No father here contributing his DNA. This is the only time that's been done here in in history. Verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So he planned to go ahead and just put her away quietly, not make a big fuss, not embarrass her around town, send her off, and then not go through with the marriage. But when he had considered this, he was thinking about this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So this isn't what you think, Joseph. This isn't normally what you would think this is the Holy Spirit who has done this. And because it's an angel speaking to him, of course, he believed it. And she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So that's Isaiah 7.14. Now, a lot of people will argue in Isaiah that the word there in Hebrew doesn't have to mean virgin. It just means young woman. And there's a lot of things we won't go into with Isaiah, the interpretation, what's going on in its context. 
But I think Matthew clears it up for us, doesn't he? Because it's clear with his word here in Greek, the word means virgin. So people will argue back and forth, what's in Isaiah? But scripture interprets scripture in this case, and we are seeing that Matthew says it was prophesied in Isaiah that a virgin would be with child. A virgin would be pregnant, which is a miraculous thing, which must be done by the Holy Spirit. In this case, we don't have to guess at that. It's obvious in the text the Holy Spirit has done this. So that's what we call the virgin birth, really the virgin conception. A virgin shall be with child. She's going to give birth to this child, and the child is going to be named God with us. Or in the case of the name the angel gives to Joseph, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, Yeshua. Luke one thirty four also gives us a snapshot here of the virgin birth. So this is just the biblical text. We start theology by looking at what the Bible says, and then we put it together. By the way, this is essential for the gospel. If somebody denies the virgin birth, they're denying the gospel. It may not sound like that, but if they can't believe in this, they certainly can't believe in the resurrection, which is also another miracle. All the miracles of Scripture are thrown out. I mean, this is a miracle, and the virgin birth is a necessary part of the gospel. It's in our basic statement of faith for all members here. It's in all the ancient creeds because it shows the deity of Christ, that God has brought this about, and that it is the Son of God who came into this world to save sinners. Luke one thirty four. but Mary said to the angel. So now the angel shows up to Mary to tell her about this. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Or literally in the Greek, since I have not known a man. I've not known a man intimately. How can this be that I would be pregnant? That's not possible. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So the word for overshadow there is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament to speak of the, the cloud of glory, the Shekinah cloud and the pillar of fire that overshadowed Israel and traveled with him throughout the wilderness. God is going to do this. God is going to create this inside of her. And that is, again, another confirmation of the virgin birth. Now, this is supported in Galatians 4.4. When Paul is trying to clarify the gospel to the Galatians, they seem to be a bit confused on many things. And he says there, but when the fullness of the time came, in God's plan, in God's sovereign plan for history, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. So there's the the deity of Christ. That's what we've been looking at in the past few weeks. And then it says, born of a woman. So anyone born of a woman is, is human as well. So we both have the deity here and the humanity. And then he goes on to say, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law. So this is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And you say, well, you already know that. Every Christmas we're talking about that. All the time you're reading the Bible and learning about that. Yes, but what's the purpose? Now, there's some different thoughts on the purpose here. It's not, it's not really explicit. Obviously, the miraculous is there. It proves the deity of Christ. Those are obvious. Some say, and the textbook actually says this, to prevent Adam's sin nature being passed down. The problem that I have with that, and many theologians do, is that Mary had a sin nature too. And it's not like the sin nature only passes through the fathers, even though it does start with our first father, Adam. The sin nature is in every human. So if you just have Mary's DNA, you still have sin nature there. And it's not really preventing that simply by saying there's no human father. There wasn't a human father because it's a miraculous thing the Holy Spirit does. And that's going to be obvious. Later in the Gospels, people even try to insult Jesus by saying, you know, who is your father? And, and there's, this, there's this insult like, we don't even know who your father really was. There's something that was fishy about your birth. So the Holy Spirit has done this. It's not anywhere stated that it's prevent Adam's sin nature. Mary had a sin nature too. So how did it not get passed to Christ? Because he does not have a sin nature. Well, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can prevent the sin nature from passing to the humanity of Christ. Again, the reason that we're told in both accounts, that the Holy Spirit prevented, or not prevented, but the Holy Spirit brought this about, which I think would imply that the Holy Spirit prevented her sin nature from being passed on. 
I mean, yes, men are sinful, but women also have a sin nature. So we need to remember that. And uh, I think it, it, it could lead some people to elevate Mary by saying that Joseph was the one with the sin nature and then Mary did not have that. I'm not seeing anywhere in my Bible that says women don't have the sin nature. So, so <laughs> what's the purpose of telling us about how this all came about? I think Luke 135 tells us the reason, that reason. I mean, there's, there's the purpose. He gives us a reason. The child shall be called the son of God. If it has no father, human father, and it was brought about, this whole conception was brought about by the Holy Spirit, it's supposed to be obvious to everyone that this child is holy, that's set apart, and he's a, he's a set apart child, and he's the son of God. That, that's what it's telling us, not things about this in nature and so on. Obviously, we're affirmed later that Christ had no sin, and he had no sin nature, of course. So I think that's as far as we, we should probably go and, and not try to stretch it past that. Here's a couple of false doctrines that come up in their attachment to Mary, not necessarily related to the virgin birth, but sometimes people think the first one is the immaculate conception. So the immaculate conception, when we see the words, we think immaculate, that's perfect, that's, that's without sin, and conception. Some people think this is dealing with Jesus. Well, of course Jesus was without sin. That's not what this is talking about. What's it talking about? It's talking about Mary. This is a Roman Catholic doctrine. It wasn't even affirmed until I think the 1800s, maybe Vatican I, I believe, where Mary is said to be without sin in her conception. Now, you see where we have to be careful by saying that Jesus didn't have an earthly father, therefore he didn't receive the sin nature. Now, the Catholics took that and said, well, turns out Mary doesn't have a sin nature at all. She never did. And let's look at Luke 147. If Mary didn't have a sin nature, then she never sinned and she doesn't need a savior, right? Luke 147, she sings a song after this news from the angel. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. Who needs a savior? Sinners. The angels, the holy angels don't need a savior. The sinners need a savior. Mary's a sinner. And she goes on in her song to talk about God will humble the proud. And and she's just blessed and so on to be the recipient of this child in her. So Mary needed a savior too. And it is elevating Mary to a place of deity by saying that she never had sin. That she never had a sin nature. Only Christ cannot be said of. Perpetual virginity of Mary is another one. So... The Catholic Church has also taught, more recently, they've, they've brought some of these out. These aren't, these aren't just going all the way back to the apostles. It's not in the Bible, obviously. It's not in the first few hundred years of the church. These doctrines get added along the way. They kind of grow and spread. And eventually, there's enough of a consensus that a council and the Pope will affirm them as the Catholic doctrine. Perpetual virginity means that Mary never had any other children. She never had sexual relations with her husband, Joseph. And that, that causes all kinds of issues just with what marriage is and how the ancients would have thought about marriage and who could have an annulment and so on. But we don't even have to get into this because Mark 6.3 clears it up really fast. Mark 6.3 just tells us about Jesus' brothers. So Mark 6.3 says that it, is this not this is the people in Jesus' hometown and they don't believe him because they've, they've just known this little kid their whole life. Now he's all grown up. And he's going to come tell them what to believe. He says, is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? So there's how many brothers there? Four brothers. Are not his sisters here with us? How many sisters? At least two. So that's six siblings, right? And then you start with Jesus. So Mary at least had seven children, six of which would have come from Joseph. First being Christ, not from him. So here we have all these brothers and sisters. Now the Catholic Church will say, well, the word for brothers here could be cousins. Adelphoi in Greek could mean, in certain cases, cousins. Yes, but the word for sisters is never used for cousins. And it's just the the plural of Adelphoi. Adelphos is the sisters. And there's no case where that's used for cousins that are female. So this is... His actual siblings, Mary had 
other children naturally with her husband after they were married. And there's absolutely no biblical reason to think that Mary was a virgin. This just props up being a nun and the monkish lifestyle and so on. These things get invented later and they are not found in scripture. All right, let's talk about the hypostatic union. So we want to look at the incarnate Christ, which is what we've been considering since last week. Not pre-incarnate. Incarnate means taking on flesh. So now he's come, he's taken on flesh. What does that mean? How do we describe the deity and humanity of Christ without being heretical? It's kind of like the Trinity, if you're not careful with this doctrine. It's very easy to be in error. And so we'll look at some of those errors. Let's get the, the, clear, the clear picture in our mind. So here's, here's a, a doctrinal statement, a long sentence, two sentences. Since his incarnation, Jesus Christ has been, is, and forever will be. So this includes right now. Forever will be one person consisting of a complete divine nature and complete human nature. This is called the hypostatic union. It's the union of two natures in one person. It doesn't exist anywhere else. It's only found in Christ. Two natures, one person. That's all you need to know. You don't have to even know what hypostatic means in Greek. It deals with two natures, divine and human, in one person. That's the key. That's the, that's the formula that's biblical. One person, two natures. Two natures, one person. Anything else is not going to be the biblical view. And so this is the God-man, or theological term, theanthropic. Theos being God, anthropic being man. The God-man. How many natures? Two. How many people? One. Okay, that, that's key. And that's built on the doctrines we've been looking at in the past, the previous three weeks to today. So the previous three classes, we looked at the deity of Christ. And what the Old Testament and New Testament said about the deity of Christ. And, and then we looked at the kenosis, where he took on flesh. And we just talked about the virgin birth and how the Spirit oversaw the, the virgin being with child. And so what that means is that Christ and his two natures, those are distinct, but it's one person. So we've looked at his divinity for some weeks. Let's just touch on the humanity. Hebrews 2.17 and we need to understand, what is it that makes a person human? We'll come back to mankind a little later and this spring semester. But we need to understand, if we're going to say his humanity, what is it that makes up a human? And Hebrews 2.17 speaks on this a bit. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things. So here's, here's one of the reasons. There's many reasons. One of the reasons he took on flesh. He had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that... That's a purpose so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the priest makes the offerings. He's the complete high priest, the final high priest. He gives himself as the offering to satisfy the wrath of God. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted, that's another reason he, he took on flesh, and with that which he has suffered, he is able to come to help those who are tempted. So even though God knows all things and he knows all experiences and he knows everything we go through, it's something quite different for God to take on flesh and go through those actual things like we do and have the same temptations as we do. And so that is just one of the many verses speaking of his humanity. That had to happen. It had to happen because of prophecies that said it would, but also to go through those things. And without his humanity, we have no, we have no sacrifice. We have no offering to God. What did he do if he wasn't fully human? Some of the errors say that Christ wasn't an actual man. That he was some sort of phantom. Some sort of spirit. Some aeon. Things like that. Chris can tell us what an aeon is in a minute. So, your will goes with your nature. I have one nature. You have one nature. Right? That's a human nature. And you have one will. You don't have two wills. I know people talk about split personalities. You have one will, your will, what you desire to do, what you make plans to do. But Christ has two natures. And so we have to, have, we have to say he has two wills, right? He has a divine will and he has a human will. Now, those don't contradict. 
Those are never against one another. But there's times in Scripture where we will see the divine will being discussed and taught and coming out of his mouth. He will say things that are the divine will. And other times you will hear him saying something about the human will. Lord God, Father, take this cup from me. What's well, the divine will that he goes through the suffering on the cross? But in his humanity, he knows what's in front of him and he knows the pain. And he says, your will be done, but if it's your will, take this cup from me. And so there's going to be some heresies in the early church where they deny the two wills. There's even talk today about the, the will of the Son and the will of the Father. And are they one when it comes to his deity and eternity past? Yes, the will of God is one. But there's some debate over that. And I think that might come up in the book soon. Let's look at John 17, 24. Jesus is praying this high priestly prayer for his disciples. And he says, O righteous Father, so the Son of God speaking to the Father who's God, O righteous Father, although the world, I'm on, 20, I'm on 25, sorry, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. So this is his will. His will is that they would be with him. And that he would protect them as part of this prayer here. And that they would see his glory, which the Father had given him. And so here speaking of the divine will. Matthew twenty six thirty nine. And it's not always easy to parse this out. It's not like you read the Bible and say, is this the divine will, human will? Sometimes it, it doesn't matter and it doesn't, you, you can't tell. You wouldn't want to parse that out. Other times it's more clear. So 2639, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So his, in his humanity, he's saying, let it pass. But he knows the will of the Father is that it will happen. So that's the divine will. And it's not like they're, they're contradicting here. He just knows what is to come. And he's showing us his humanity. It would seem inhuman, wouldn't it? If he just said, ah, oh, it's no big deal. I'm going to the cross, you know. No problem. Then all kinds of heretics would jump on that and say, see, fake body, not real. Didn't have nerve receptors, you know, all of these things. So let's go back here just for a second. Humanity entails what? What is a human? Just basic components of a human. Body, soul, or spirit. Soul or spirit, either one. Body, soul, or spirit. Material, immaterial, okay? For Christ to be human, he has to have what? Body and human soul. Not the Holy Spirit as his soul. Not his divinity as his soul. That's one of the heresies we're going to look at, is when they say Christ did not have a human soul, then he's not human, right? He's a, he's a divine person and a robot moving the arms, right? Moving the legs with the levers. No, he's fully human. He's not animating a dead body to walk around, okay? One more topic before we get into the errors. There's a doctrine called the communication of properties, and this is just a fancy way, it's even more fancy in Latin, but it's a fancy way of saying, if you say something about one nature, it can be rightly said of Christ as a whole person. So even though we often are careful to say his deity, his humanity, if we're just talking about Jesus Christ as a person, either, either side that we're talking about, right, either nature that we're talking about, can be said of his whole person. Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, Jesus is his human name. Is it right to say Jesus' is human name is the Son of God? Yes. Christ is fully human. What's Christ? That's his divine title, his divine name. The Son of God is human. Ooh, that sounds a little bit iffy, right? The Son of God. But he, he is right now, right? He has a human nature. So, you have to be careful when you're talking just to the deity or just to the humanity. But if you're talking of the whole person of Christ, then either thing you say can be applied to the whole person of Christ. And so we see this in Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. God bled? 
How can God bleed? How can the deity bleed? Well, again, we're speaking of the whole person of Christ. And so the writer here, Luke, and this is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, they understand he's talking of the Son of God. So when it says God purchased the church with his own blood, the people hearing this and the reader is to understand they're talking about the person of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So did the Son of God bleed? Yes. Does God have blood? No. So you say Son of God, you're understanding that we're talking about Jesus Christ, the whole person. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. This seems like splitting hairs, but if you're the one having to teach on this, then splitting hairs becomes very important. Because the last thing you want to do is make a mistake and mislead somebody into thinking wrongly about the natures of Christ. And that, that comes up in these texts. Revelation 1, 17 when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me saying, do not fear. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, he says, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So can God die? The deity can't die, but Jesus Christ died. So it's okay to say that in the context here, even though this is clearly the Son of God that is speaking here. Because it's in the red letters, right? That makes it the Son of God. Some of you are laughing. Everybody else is like, what is he talking about? The red letters weren't inspired, so sometimes it's funny to kind of make fun of people who elevate the red letters above the rest of the Bible. But it's just an inside joke. My Bible actually has red letters. I actually prefer it without that, but a lot of Bibles these days do, so that's okay. They're not more inspired, though, than the black letters. They're all inspired. And in the early church, they didn't have red ink. And so we can say these things about him that pertain to his deity and his divinity and the one person, Jesus Christ. And in 662, like the next verse, the spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And so he, he's getting at the fact that he can teach these things because God is his father and he's the son of God, but he's also the son of man. And then one more real quick, Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So can the Son of God be forsaken by the Father? No. Deity can't forsake deity. But in his humanity, he can feel that forsakenness. So we can say the Son of God was forsaken, even though we're not specifically talking about his deity, but the whole person of Christ. Okay, so this is just... Nice for us to be able to attribute things to Christ as a whole. But if we're going to talk specifically about each nature, we need to be a lot more careful. All right. Here's the Chalcedonian Creed, summarizing some things I just said here and, and things we've talked about in the past. So you have the Nicene Creed against Arianism. Still lots of Arianism for generations. The Chalcedonian Creed comes back and beefs up the Nicene Creed. Just the underlying portion about the Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead. There's his deity. Also perfect in manhood, there's his humanity. Truly God and truly man. So we say fully God and fully man, but it's, it's more theologically accurate. I remember R.C. Sproul saying, we should say truly God and truly man, not fully. I don't remember his reasoning there, but there was a good, good theological reason. Words have meaning. Of a reasonable soul and body. So that's, that's key because some of the early heretics were saying Jesus didn't have a human soul. You're just kind of operating in a, a lifeless body. So they said reasonable, which means rational, which means a, a real soul, a thinking soul. Consubstantial or, or coessential, uh, of the same substance, basically, is what we're saying. The same nature as the Father, according to the Godhead. So again, a reaffirmation of his deity and consubstantial with us as well. So an affirmation of his humanity, according to the manhood. And all things like unto us, but without sin. And here's this word we looked at a couple of weeks ago, begotten. One of the reasons I argue that it should still be translated in our English Bibles is because the early church still used it. And they knew Greek better than we do, and they didn't have a problem with it. So, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. And so just back and forth with his deity and his humanity, both affirmed. Born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. That becomes an issue later in the Catholic Church, but it's not really an issue here because Jesus is the Son of God. Mary was his mother. But uh, unfortunately, Catholics take that and go really bad places with it. So we don't use that term much anymore. According to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. There it is again. And here at the last, to be acknowledged in two natures. And now let's describe those two natures with four 
words here. Inconfusedly. The two natures are not confused. They're not mixing like when you, when you stir up some sugar in the water and you can't see the sugar anymore. Not unchangeable. So they can't be changed over time. Indivisible. He is one person and you can't now separate him. And there are two natures. And that's inseparably as well. Continuing on, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. So there's the properties thing. A property is saying something about him. God's attributes can be called properties. And concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons. So very careful. Why? I mean, the Chalcedonian Creed doesn't say this about every systematic theology topic. Why so much about Christ in the early church? Because guess what the major doctrine everybody's messing with is? The doctrine of Christ. We've got to get that right or we don't even have salvation. We don't even have Christianity. So let's talk about some of the errors that, come up, that comes up. Why does this need to be written in 451? Well, because there's all these errors. If you read the, the chapter, if you read the book, you've got a review of these. The earliest one's called Ebionism. Ebionism said, basically, I'm summarizing in my own words, but Jesus is a great man. He was a great prophet. He was endowed with the Spirit. He was exalted as king. Ebionism was from some Jews who said, yeah, we're Christians, but Christianity does not mean Jesus is God. He was just a great prophet. He was just a great man. So that's Ebionism. Ebionism, it's wrong. It's not biblical. We've seen that. Are there any Ebionites around today? I like to apply it to today. Are there any Ebionites around today? Well, the, the Muslims the Muslims say something like this. And Unitarian Universalists. Unitarians are those who don't believe in the Trinity. Universalists are those who believe everyone will be saved no matter what. And then they combined in the late 1800s into one denomination. There's a, a pretty large one here in San Antonio. And so they say that Jesus is not God, that he was just a great man because they don't believe in the Trinity. So you can't have Jesus being God if you believe there's a father in heaven at the same time there's a son walking on the earth. Another one's Gnosticism. Gnosticism is so popular today. It's so prevalent. It's so mushy. You don't even know sometimes what it is. Originally, they taught, like the ancient philosophers, that the matter in the world is evil. So everything you see physically is evil. It's tainted. It's sin has corrupted everything. But the spiritual is good. So the thing you cannot see is good. The thing you can see and touch and taste and smell, that's evil. So our bodies are evil. But the spiritual, that's what it's all about. And they said there is a supreme being. Well, there's also a demiurge. And the demiurge, again, they got this from the ancient Greeks. A demiurge is the creator of the world. And often he's at odds with the, the supreme being. And then Christ, they said, is either a phantom or an aeon united to Jesus the man. So you have the man, Jesus, and then something comes along and sort of possesses him, takes over. Chris, what's well, an aeon? Yeah, a, a, a little God, a spark of the divinity. Yeah. So if you think of the divinity as this great fire, one of the sparks flies off. That's, that's like an aeon. It's a thing that emanates out of this supreme being or demiurge. Special knowledge. So Gnosticism is named because a Gnostic comes from the, the Greek word gnosis. Gnosis is knowledge. And this is secret knowledge. Not quite like a cult we think of today, although it is a cult. But they would say, okay, that's great that you're a Christian. But if you really want to know the deep things of God, if you really want to know the secret things. Only the initiated can come and learn these things. You have to join Gnosticism. And so this gets really going in the second century. There's lots of books written. In my apologetics class, we looked at some of those like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, all these writings in Greek in the second century where people are, Gnostics are making up stories. And then somewhere along the way says this stuff is garbage and they threw it in the trash, right? But the trash was covered up with sand and then scholars in the 1800s find it. And now everybody today is like, oh, look at all this stuff that was hidden. There was more than one religion in Christianity. Look at all this stuff. Let's study it. Let's bring it back. It's about, you know, Jesus having children and all this weird stuff. And 
doesn't he take the sand and make an elephant out of it, like blowing life into it? And it gets in the movies these days and things like, uh, what's the show these days? The Chosen, stuff like that, imbibes some of these Gnostic concepts. So don't believe it. Is it around today? Oh, you'd be surprised. It's around today. That's the biggest cult today that is Gnostic. So in Gnosticism, you could have all these different gods because these aeons would come off and create many gods. And so in Mormonism, you can become your own god. You know, it's kind of a hidden thing. They don't bring this out front. But if you get into what they believe, it's essentially have as many kids as you can. Be a good person. God will make you a god. You'll get your own planet. You can create lots of people who can make themselves gods. And it's like billions and billions of gods. We won't get into the... Go back to my apologetics class if you want to, to learn more about some of their strange beliefs. But that is clearly a Gnostic cult today. The Enneagram has a lot of Gnosticism in there. These numbers are going to tell you something about yourself and what you should do. Oh, that one's not even hard. I mean, secret. Gnosticism is about the secret. There you go. You can buy a book that will tell you about the secret. Gnostic elements. Jesus calling. She says she, she spoke with Jesus. She's going to write down what he said. And it's not scripture. She writes down her thoughts and feelings. Uh, a type of Gnosticism. Yeah, they don't have to get into the demiurge and all of that eons to be a Gnostic. Gnostic is just anyone who has a, a special secret knowledge that no one else has that they're going to then share with others. This guy, definitely the power of now. And basically everything Oprah promotes as religion would be classified as Gnosticism. Okay, so let's just not, don't even mess with the stuff. I mean, this is everywhere. Everywhere. It's all over the bookstore. I mean, you go to Barnes & Noble and it's... Barnes and Noble Christian section. Jesus Calling, the tenth edition of Jesus Calling. Jesus, Bart Ehrman, more Jesus Calling. Like, you got to go just to the Bible section and don't look at the Christian section. Okay, uh, adoptionism. So these are pretty much the way they happen as time goes on in church history. Adoptionism is just as it sounds. God adopted the man, Jesus, as his son at some point following his birth. This is a lot of liberal scholars like this today that... When Jesus was baptized and God says, this is my son, that's when God adopted him. Others say, no, it's at his resurrection. And I'm surprised even in some of the more scholarly commentaries, not, not conservatives, but more liberal Christian scholars will still hold this, this kind of view. And it's been around in church history for over 1,800 years. So don't believe that. Here's the most common version of it. Bart Ehrman he said he was a Christian, then he said he wasn't a Christian, and now he's doing all that he can to disprove Christianity in his mind. A scholar who's written many scholarly books, but he also writes these more popular level books. One of the early ones he wrote that was popular was called Misquoting Jesus. And I remember when I became more knowledgeable of the Bible and wanted to study theology, I went to Hastings in Kerrville when we lived there and started going through the Christian section, and I'm like, Misquoting Jesus? Who would, who would misquote Jesus? You know, Christians don't misquote Jesus. I was looking at this book, and I looked up the guy on the internet and found out more about him and all these debates, and he, he did a lot of debates with various people. Anyway, this was one that he wrote a few years ago, How Jesus Became God. How Jesus Became God. The exaltation of a Jewish preacher from Galilee. So his idea, basically, to summarize it, is this man, Jesus, a great preacher, kind of a prophet, gets exalted by the apostles, and they write down scripture that makes him seem like God. Ehrman would say he's really not God. And he, he takes on more of the, the church had this adoptionistic view. All right, so we've talked a lot about the Trinity and the doctrine of God. Frank went over some of these bad illustrations. Sabellianism, or today it's just called modalism. So this is that, yes, Jesus is God, but there's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all existing at once. It's just God putting on a different costume, okay? So Jesus is like the ice, and then God's like the water, and the Holy Spirit's like the vapor, but it's all the same elements there. It's all the same chemicals, basically. It's just changing shape, depending on what's happening. And so Sibelianism, taught by Sibelius, and believed all the way till today by some, is that you have the Father, and then He comes and takes on flesh, and that's the Son. And then after the resurrection, 
you have God, the Holy Spirit. But you never have them all existing at the same time. It's just God putting on different costumes to play his part on the stage. So they deny the Trinity. So don't use this analogy. Just, just don't use an analogy of the Trinity, okay? Just say three persons, one God, okay? Three persons, one God. There's no analogy because it's God, and we can't really describe it with anything in our world today. Are there modalists today? Yeah, they come in a lot of different forms. A major modalist today is the United Pentecostal Church. Not all Pentecostals. This is specifically one denomination in Pentecostalism called the United Pentecostal Church. They say they're taking the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. But they deny the Trinity. They, they twist the doctrine of the Trinity. They don't have the true gospel. Here's the most popular preacher. He is a modalist. He claimed to be a modalist for years. Then he was challenged on it. He tweaked his language a little bit, but it's still modalism. And this guy makes millions, billions of dollars. I mean, I heard him preach one time in a seeker-friendly church when I didn't know any better. And I thought he was passionate. And we, we thought, wow, who's this passionate guy? We never heard, you know, black preaching before. And he was so passionate. And he was just sweating up there. And we thought, man, that's a great preacher. And then about five years later, we found out he doesn't even believe in the Trinity. So you have to be careful and not let passion just overshadow theology. Some of you guys are too young for this, but used to in, in Christian music, right? Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Anybody hear that? Okay, there's a few of us older folks around. Okay, They're modalists. They were all United Pentecostal preachers are involved in the movement. And uh, Christians really like this. You know, real Christians really like their music. And so they said, well, you know, they're not. They're not modalists. They, they're no longer in ministry. Well, then they, they kind of broke up or stopped playing and, and they went back to their hometown. I can't remember which one here is a pastor in Austin. And on his website, he had a modalistic doctrinal statement. And then there was all this flack and all this stuff going around. So they modified it a little bit like T.D. Jakes did. But no renouncing of it. No repentance of it. That's what you want. When somebody's a false teacher, you don't just want them to, to tweak a few words and make it sound better. You want them to say, I was wrong. That's completely against the Bible. I was heretical. Now I've been converted or whatever. And, and I've been changed. My mind has been corrected by others and the word of God. So let's, let's look at this. Here, here's, the, here's what they believe. There's one God. Well, he, here's the key word here is what? There's one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect, eternally existing in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Change one word and it's fine. What's the word we need to take out? Manifestations. Manifestations is how you show yourself to others. And so that needs to be changed to persons. Then we have a, a doctrinal statement that matches the Bible. But this manifestations is a specific language to modalism and the way it's expressed today. So a few years ago, there was something called the Elephant Room 2. I'll just skip along. They're asked. They invite T.D. Jakes. It's kind of a big dust up. Why is T.D. Jakes coming? This is supposed to be for Christian pastors. And so Mark Driscoll says, tell us your beliefs, Bishop Jakes. Is the issue one God manifesting himself successfully in three persons? Okay, that's modalism. Or what do you believe in one God existing eternally in three persons? Right, that's biblical. So is it, is it manifestations or is it persons? What is your understanding now? Which one do you believe? Now, everybody was kind of in an uproar watching this. It was a big thing in the evangelical world. And here's, here's what he said. Now, listen, this is, this is how people talk. You have, to, you have to pay attention when it comes to theology to words. I believe the latter one. Okay, what was the latter one? One God existing eternally in three persons. Okay, so he says he believes in one God, three persons. He says one God, three persons. I'm not crazy about the word persons, though. He says, you describe manifestations as modalist, but I describe it as Pauline. And 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, for God was manifest in the flesh. He's talking about the Son of God taking on flesh, not the God going through these different manifestations. Paul's not a modalist, but he doesn't think it's robbery to say manifest in the flesh. Maybe it's semantics, but Paul says this. Now, when we start to think about this sort of thing, I think it's important to realize there are distinctives between the work of the Father and the work of the Son. I'm with you. I've been with you. So he starts off by saying he agrees with three persons. Then he immediately says he's not a big fan of the word persons. Then he defends the word manifestations. Then he says later 
There's distinctions between the work of the Father and the Son. Okay, I'm with you. Sounds still pretty modalistic to me. So it is modalism. Stay away. All right, moving quickly. Docetism, he said, is fully divine. But he had no humanity. He's not human at all. There was an early guy named Valentinius in the 100s. He comes into the church. He's kind of a superstar. He's got all this money. He donates it to the church in Rome. He, he starts learning and growing. He starts teaching. He starts saying that Christ was not human. And the church in Rome said, we don't want your money. Take it back. And he was really offended. And they cast him out as a heretic. Marcion came along and said, you know what? I don't like all this Old Testament stuff. I'm cutting it out of my Bible. And he cut out most of the New Testament that mentioned Israel and the Jews. And so today we kind of throw out the term Marcionism to say when people are just focused on parts of the Bible and they cut out with scissors other parts of the Bible. That's what Marcion actually did. He didn't believe most of the Bible. And he also taught that Christ was not human. And so these, these were recognized, named uh, heretics in the early church. Those of us today, again, something like this in Islam. It says they slew him not in Surah 4. 157 and 158, they slew him not nor crucified, but it appeared so unto them. So it just appeared like they did. It was, it was kind of a trick, right? It looked like they killed him, but they actually didn't kill him. Well, so is he human or not? What's going on there? Some say that's ebonism. Others say that's docetism. Okay, this is a big one. This is a big one that comes up for over 100 years in church history. This guy named Arius is from Alexandria. He begins teaching the Bible. And he believed that the Son is not equal to the Father. Now again, when it comes to theology, pay attention here. One little letter and the Greek word here makes a huge difference between saved and not saved. Okay, So he said Christ was not the same substance as the Father. Homoousia. But he said, I'll grant that it was similar substance. Homoousia. The difference is one letter in Greek. It's called an iota. It's the smallest little letter in Greek. People say words don't matter. Theology doesn't matter. Why do y'all go to such a church that teaches doctrine and the Bible? Things like this matter because Arianism is heresy and it becomes popular in the Roman Empire and takes over much of the Christian churches in the empire. The pastors, the bishops become Arian because Arianism is popular. It's popular with the Roman government. It's popular with the emperor. Some of the emperors are Arians. Some of the Germans who are getting hired to come into the Roman Empire to work as soldiers and eventually will take over parts of the empire when the barbarians come, they're Arians. Why can't you guys just get along with everyone else? All these Arians are Christians too, right? Why can't y'all just be at peace with them? And you had guys like Athanasius saying, never, never. The Bible says that Christ is the same substance as the Father. He is God. He's not like God. He's not similar to God. The Son is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Roman Emperor said, get out of here, Athanasius. You don't get to be bishop in Alexandria. So he got banished like seven times from being the pastor there in Egypt. So this sort of takes over the empire. And people said Athanasius against the world because no one agreed. It seemed like, it's kind of like Elijah, right? No prophets are left. No Christians are left in the Roman Empire. Turned out there were still a few, but Athanasius took a lot of the heat. So are there Arians today? But how did he make it popular, by the way? Music, right? You get a nice little tune because people remember the songs they sing in church, sometimes more than the Bible or theology. And you get a catchy tune and you put these little jingles in there. Like there was a time when the son was not God. There was a time when he was not. There was a time, and you say these little things, and it would have been in Greek that time. And it catches on and all the churches are singing it. The government's sort of propping it up. And it's the popular thing to do. Arians today, Jehovah's Witness. They deny the deity of Christ. They come to your door. I want to talk to you about other things, but their main problem is they deny the deity of Christ. Okay, trying to finish these up. Apollinarianism, named after, so the rest of these will be named after people. Uh, Apollinarius was the bishop, so he's like, he's the pastor of Laodicea, one of the cities mentioned in Revelation. This is in the 300s. And he said, well, yeah, Jesus, we'll say he's God, but he has a human body plus the divine nature, but he has no human soul. 
or no human will. So it's not like what we call the mind, the heart, the soul, the spirit. He has none of that. It's just a body. Just a body. Well, he's not fully human. So it's like this, Apollinarianism. A human body added to the divine nature. Lacking a human soul. Okay, so not, not full humanity, partial humanity. Can't go with that one. These are from Wayne Grudem Systematic Theology. He has some nice diagrams on some of these. Nestorianism. Nestorius was in Constantinople in the 381 to 451 period. People say he didn't believe this, or he did, but then changed his mind, and then his followers took it up. We don't have time to debate that. What he, what he, what's a, tied to him and what the church would later say he's heretical for is that he said, there's two persons and there's two natures. What's the right formula? One person, two natures, right? One person, two natures. Or two natures, one person, same thing. He said, no, no, two natures means two persons. So Jesus was a deified man. That's how he could be united with the person of the divinity. So it sort of looks like this, although it's hard to describe two persons in the same box. But, uh, well, you know, two persons would be two persons, right? Not, well, how does that work with Jesus Christ? I, I don't know how he worked it all out. His followers really took it up. They took it east. So unfortunately, the gospel that a lot of people in the east heard first was Nestorianism. And it settles in the east in Syria. Some say he went all the way, his followers went all the way to China, which there's good evidence for. And so later in the Roman Empire, Eastern Christians in Persia and such would not get along with the Christians in the Roman Empire for this reason. The historians today would be the Holy Apostolic Catholic Assyrian Church of the East. And there are some of those here. I think there might be one in San Antonio. I think it's the last one, Eutychianism, by Eutyches of Constantinople. So this was the happening place. Constantinople becomes a new Rome in the 300s. This one is a little bit more specific, but monophytism, monophytism, only one nature in Christ. So not two natures, but one nature, one person. Okay? He said the divinity and the humanity had mixed together to create one new nature. So you take some divinity, you take some humanity, and mix it all up, and it's some new thing that's never been done before or since. That's Eutychianism. Then that later branches out into monothelitism that says, okay, Jesus only has one will, not two that go one each with the nature. So that's what it looks like. Mix a little bit of human nature with some divine nature and you get a new nature. I don't know, a third substance, right? A third substance. It's like a new parallel universe or something. All denied, so... Stay away from these. Now you know a little bit about them. If you want more on some of these, go back to my apologetics class on our website. I go into the modern day versions more. Jehovah's Witnesses, we do a whole class on Mormons. We do a whole class on all of these, even the Roman Catholic doctrines. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time in studying this this morning. Help us to know true theology, to know the Bible, to understand what it says on the doctrine of Christ. Just to be clear in our heads and our hearts on this, to believe the truth to study your word, and to tell others who are following some of these cultish heresies, Lord, let us tell them the truth of the gospel. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.